The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, so we've been walking through the book of Philippians uh, for several weeks now. This is actually, uh, I believe, week 10. Uh, We've got two weeks left today. One of them next week will be done. We'll finish up, wrap up Philippians, and move on to the next thing. Uh, Remember, we're talking about a whole new way to live life. As we've been walking through the book of Philippians, we're talking about a radical way to live life, something radically different than what we're used to. We're talking about finding joy outside of the circumstances of life. As bad stuff happens, it doesn't steal our joy. As believers, the joy of the Lord has been placed in our hearts by the Spirit of the living God. God's Spirit, when you professed Him, there's fruit of that Spirit living inside of you, and the fruit of that, one of the fruits of that is joy. So whether things go your way or not, you have joy because you have Jesus. So whether things are good, whether things are bad, you have joy because you have Christ. That being the case, we don't live for temporal gratification. We don't live our lives for the here and now, but for the eternal glory of God. So what does that look like in our lives? What have we been talking about? We live for others first. We surrender in complete obedience to the Father. Rather than following our heart's desires, we crucify the flesh and submit ourselves to the word of God. That's what it looks like to live a life of joy. This is where joy comes from, and it's radically different than the philosophies of the world. This was what makes us so different from the world around us. We're marked by a different worldview than that of the culture and that makes us a peculiar people, as Scripture says. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what was Jesus saying? He's saying that the life of a Christian is fully contrasted from the life of those in the world. It's literally darkness and light. Right, That our lives should be so radically different that it would be just like if I turned all the lights off in the building right now and turned on one little light. It would be such a contrast. That light would be such a contrast in a dark room. That's what the Christian life should look like in a dark, sinful world. Your life should be radically different. There should be a stark contrast between the way of a follower of Jesus and how the lost world around us lives their lives. And when we do that, some will see it and will be convinced of the goodness of God. And so in three chapters, Paul has been leading us towards something. As we've been going through these three chapters, he's been leading towards something. And the way he's been leading up to chapter four is really genius. He's been preparing the hearts of the Philippians to deal with a very specific issue. And rather than just speaking directly to the issue, he spends three chapters preparing their hearts to receive his challenge. Why does he do this? Why does he spend three chapters talking about all this other stuff before he actually addresses the real issue that he's trying to speak to? It's because sin is always a heart issue. Sin is always a heart issue. We want to focus on the specific sins, right? We want to talk about lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and all of these things. We want to, we want to focus in on the specific act. But the reality of sin is that it's not about the specific act because sin comes from a sinful heart. You are a wretched being, is what Paul says, 
right? And so sin comes from your heart. That's the issue. You have a sinful heart. All of your sins are just symptoms of the greater issue, which is that you are a sinful being. You have a sinful heart. So Paul knew that the Spirit does his work in the heart. The Holy Spirit does work in our hearts. The Holy Spirit's not interested in just changing your behavior. The Holy Spirit wants to change your heart. So Paul knew if he could speak to the heart through the power of the Spirit, he could change, he, he could see a change in the heart and therefore a change in behavior. If Paul could grasp and get a hold of the hearts of the Philippians first, then he knew that there would be a change in their behavior because the Holy Spirit does his work in hearts. So what's the issue Paul is addressing here? He's addressing conflict. Conflict. How many of you guys run from conflict? Like you hate it. You run from it. Don't want to be in conflict, so you just run from it. How many of you guys are like, I love it, and I will toe up next to someone any day? Anybody? Some of you are like, because I know some of you are like that. At least you're really good at it. The issue here is conflict. It wasn't a doctrinal issue. It wasn't that the Philippians were wavering in their faith. It wasn't that they were ignoring the mission. It's just a good old petty conflict between a couple of ladies in the church. That's all this is. He writes an entire letter that is in the canon of our scripture to deal with some conflict between two ladies. That seems trivial, doesn't it? It seems weird that he would write a whole book to address some conflict between two ladies. It seems like, especially if it's not doctrinal or it's not anything real big of a deal, why would he address it? Why in the world would he take the time to write a letter to address this, and why would it be included in the canon of Scripture? Uh, a few years ago, when we moved to Nederland back in 2018, uh, right before we moved, I had gotten in a truck accident or car accident and wrecked my truck. So it was out of commission for several, several weeks. So I had to borrow a friend's truck, and uh, the friend is Brandon Hill, some of you guys know him. He let me borrow his truck while I moved, which was very nice of him. Uh, well, I am a creature of habit, so I can be very detail-oriented, but if I get out of my like normal routine, then all is lost. And it's hard for me to stay focused. It's hard for me to stay organized. So I have like my key, my church keys are in the same spot all the time. And I have, they're in my, the door of my truck. So if I don't have my truck, I don't have my church keys. Well, I had driven from Lumberton all the way down here to Nederland to get something out of the buildings, and then I didn't have my keys. And who wants to drive back to Lumberton, right? So I decided I'm going to try and see if there's a door unlocked. I was trying to get in the event center, the metal building over here. I was going to try to see maybe if I got lucky, someone maybe left a door unlocked and I could get in, or maybe even break in. Uh, and so I climbed up the fire escape above the kitchen door um, to, to be able to try to get uh, into the building, see if that door happened to be unlocked. And as I'm going up the ladder, there are warning signs. This thing's a little sketch. It's, it's, it's probably like 40 years old. It's a little rusty um, and, and probably should not have trusted it. Right? There's all these warning signs. But I climbed up it. I checked the door. It was locked, unfortunately. So I start to come down. And as I'm coming down, the entire fire escape and myself start to fall down. And the thing literally falls on top of me. Like, I scream like a little girl, put my hands up, luckily protected my face. 
and, and, and it fell on top of me, bruised me all up, cut me up a little bit, but worse, it dented up my friend's truck who let me borrow it. Yeah, it fell onto the truck a little bit too. Um, he's still my friend, uh, I think. Um, but there were warning signs. There were hints at instability, but I ignored them. Here's why Paul addresses the situation, because conflict is unavoidable. We know that. We live in a world today where it's evident that anybody who denies that is living in fantasy land. Conflict is unavoidable. You're going to have conflict with people at some point. But left unchecked, conflict can bring immense instability to the body of Christ. If we leave conflict unchecked, it could just wreak havoc amongst the body of Christ. There's so much instability that it brings with it. In Matthew 12, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by means of demonic power. And he points out how flawed that logic is in verse 25. Matthew 12, 25, he says, knowing their thoughts, they didn't even say this, he just was able to perceive their thoughts. He says, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So Jesus uses this logical argument to prove that it would have been ridiculous for him to cast out demons by means of demonic power because that would be warring with an ally. If he was using demonic power to cast out demons, how does that make any sense? That's two things fighting against themselves. The same logic rings true about the church. When we allow conflict to go unchecked, it leads to great instability within our body and hinders our effectiveness. And no church divided against itself will stand. That's why it's so important. That's why Paul writes an entire letter because conflict is incredibly dangerous if it goes unchecked. One petty argument can destroy the testimony of a church. We know this. How many times have you seen or heard of churches splitting over petty, prideful arguments? There are churches in our community today that were started 50 years ago from petty, stupid arguments. Churches split all the time over stuff like this. It's important, though, that we understand that the conflict Paul is addressing is not over a doctrinal issue. How do we know that? Because Paul would have sided with whoever was right if that was the case. If it was a doctrinal issue that these two ladies were arguing about, Paul would have said, hey, you're wrong, you're right, and he would have dealt with it that way. Could have been done in one chapter. Paul never shied away from setting people straight over doctrine. One example of this is Galatians 2, verse 11. He says, but when Cephas, talking about Peter, the apostle, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul had no issue dealing with, with, with doctrinal issues. If there was a doctrinal issue, Paul would have addressed it. He always stood for truth. So what he's addressing here is trivial, trivial arguments that are rooted in pride, not truth. So, If conflict is unavoidable, yet at the same time incredibly dangerous for the local church, then how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? What's the biblical model for dealing with conflict? Well, Paul gives it to us in our text this morning. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. It says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, I urge Euodia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So in our text, Paul gives us five steps to help us resolve conflict within the church. Number one is this, don't be prideful. Sounds simple enough, right? Don't be prideful. He's in verse one, he says, so then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul is something we're, or pride is something we're all too familiar with, right? Every one of you is prideful. Every one of you. We don't like to admit that, and that's prideful that we're unwilling to admit that. But you are prideful because all sin at its root is, is, is built on the foundation of pride, an example of this is someone cuts you off in traffic. What do you do? You yell at them, right? You get irritated. Like, what's wrong with you, you idiot? What are you doing? They're driving too slow. You're like, what, come on, grandma, what are you doing? Right? We yell at people when they're driving down the road. We get irritated with people. We, we, we yell, we get frustrated. The heart of that is pride. Right? It's us acting as if we're the only one with any sense on the road. We believe that sometimes, right? You're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. And you're like, what is wrong with you? How could you possibly be so stupid? How could you possibly do something so stupid? When you did the same thing two days before, right? None of us are perfect drivers. We're all struggle sometimes. Sometimes we're not paying attention the way we should or we do something that's not right. That's pride. We do the same thing with people in the church sometimes. We're, we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we think our way is the best way. Or even the only way. So if someone doesn't agree or there's other ideas presented, we get upset and just like that, we've got conflict. And our text, Paul is saying, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. In what manner? The end of chapter 3 was about the Holy Spirit sanctifying us into the image of the Father. Sanctification produces humility because you realize you can't sanctify yourself, right? The process of sanctification inadvertently makes you humble because you realize you can't sanctify yourself. The Holy Spirit does that. Remember, Paul acknowledges that he's a wretched man, and because of that, he's fully dependent on the Spirit to sanctify him. That's what we learned a few weeks ago. And this reality produces humility, and humility facilitates unity. Paul says, regarding your hope for sanctification, stand firm in the Lord. Don't get prideful. Don't start thinking you've got it all figured out. Remember that you are a wretched sinner, rescued and sanctified by the grace of God. And when we have this kind of posture, we come into this community together with this kind of posture. We don't sweat the small stuff. We don't sweat the things that don't matter. We're not quick to judge. We're not quick to condemn. We're not quick to anger. We're not so easily irritated because we realize that we are fallible people too. 
And so we offer grace because we understand we aren't any different. Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If you have good sense, not forgetting your own spiritual depravity before you encounter Jesus, you'll be slow to, you'll be slow to anger. You'll take joy in overlooking trivial offenses. So here's the deal. If every little thing sets you off, it's because you're prideful. If you're an irritable person, it's because you're a prideful person. It's because you've forgotten the grace that was given to you freely. Paul says, don't be prideful. Don't draw such hard lines on secondary issues. Remain firm in your understanding that you're a fallible being. It's possible and even likely for you to be wrong. He urged Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. How can we agree? How can we possibly agree? By humbling ourselves and realizing that our way isn't always the only way. Churches argue over things like programming, style of music, decorations. I've heard of churches arguing over the color of the carpet. How stupid is that? People argue over the dumbest, stupidest things. We argue over stage design, staffing. I mean, just all kinds of th- these secondary trivial issues that churches split over. People are dying without Jesus. And this is the kind of things that churches are worried about. The kind of things that churches are splitting over. And so two things. If this is the stuff you're most passionate about, your passions are misdirected. If you're most passionate about what kind of program we offer in children's ministry or in student ministry or what, what kind of things we do in here, or what, whether the walls are black or whether they're brown or whether we have electric guitars on stage or just a piano, or if those are the things that you're passionate about, your passion is misdirected. Your passion should be for the glory of God, not for your personal taste. Paul says, stand firm. So two things. the second thing is, if you're drawing hard lines on stuff like this, it's because you're prideful enough to think that your way is the better way. If this is what you're passionate about, your passions are misdirected. If this is what you're willing to draw a hard line on and say, I'm leaving the church because of these issues, then you are incredibly prideful because you think that your way is the right way. Paul says, stand firm in your understanding that it's God who has and is changing you. Don't get prideful. And agree in the Lord. All that other stuff doesn't matter. Let's focus on what does matter. What does matter? The gospel. The gospel and proclaiming the gospel. That's what matters. That's what our mission is. That's what we're supposed to be living for, is going out and proclaiming the gospel. That's what we should be passionate about. Not all this other trivial stuff, these secondary issues. Let's be passionate about what matters which is the truth of God's word and living it out in our daily lives and proclaiming the gospel to all who will listen. Jesus changed you and he changed me, not so that we can argue about these things that don't matter, but so we can be united on what does matter. Number two, this next step is partner in peace. Verse three says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Look, Paul 
acknowledges that these women, they cared about the gospel. They lived it out, but there's still this little issue, this little trivial issue. There's a juvenile idea from when we're in grade school that if your friend hates someone, you got to hate them as well. You guys remember that? Like when you're a kid, if your friend hated someone, then they're your enemy too because you love your friend. Right? And unfortunately, that's kind of like creeped in to where we're at as adults too. Like we still kind of live by that sometimes. We mask it as, well, I'm just supporting my friend. Paul asks the Philippian church to help these women. How should they help? By partnering for peace. Telling someone what they want to hear only fuels division. If your friend has conflict with someone else and you're just constantly feeding them what they want to hear, you're just fueling the division. You're not helping anyone that way. There's nothing loving about lying. Nothing loving about lying. We should always be pushing others towards peace. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another in order to what? To provoke love and good works. This is what the church body should be about, pushing each other towards love and good works. We're supposed to be challenging one another. Genuine concern and love for another leads to honest rebuke when needed. If you really love someone, you're not just going to tell them what they want to hear. You're going to tell them the truth. You're going to tell them what they need to hear. We get this when it comes to our children, don't we? Our kids especially our younger two, like they, they struggled to get the idea that you have to look both ways before you run across the street. They would just be like, run across the street. And as they're running across the street, they'd look, right? And, and I just knew like they're going to get creamed one day. And so I brought them in and I start getting, I'm like, you guys have got to make sure that you pay attention to what you're doing. And sure enough, we send them back outside and immediately they run across the street and cars come and screeching brakes and all this. Luckily, uh, they had plenty of time to, to hit their brakes. And so what, what did I do? Did I just say, well, I just really want to be supportive of their individual expression. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I brought them in and I tore their butts up. Right? Because I care and I'm worried that they're going to die if they don't get this. It's so important. Right? Because I love them. I rebuke them because I love them. If you love your fellow brethren, if you love your fellow Christian, you're not just going to let them continue to live off in sin. You're going to rebuke them because you love them. It's unloving to lie to them. What's best for the brethren? To agree in the Lord. That's what Paul says. That means when there's conflict, we push one another towards agreeing in the Lord. We try to help them to see the bigger picture. We challenge their pride. It's not always easy. I get that. But it's always necessary. The next point is, number three, be joyful and gracious. Verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. So we watch out for pride, we partner together to facilitate peace, and we live in the joy of our salvation and make that known with our graciousness. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you miss that, let me say it again, rejoice. Anytime something's written twice, you probably should really pay attention, right? We've been talking eight weeks about what biblical joy looks like. Paul wrote three chapters about it. What does rejoicing the Lord look like? Living for others first, walking in complete obedience to the Father, not following your heart, but keeping it in check by means of the word of God. Paul says, walk in that joy always. Don't stop walking in that joy. Don't get your focus pulled off on other things. Stay 
focused on walking in the joy of your salvation always. And how will we know that we're walking in joy always? Our graciousness will be known. What is graciousness? It means to be sweet and reasonable. Gracious people can get along with just about anybody. Why? Because they aren't easily irritated. They're humble enough to realize that their way isn't the only way. They're humble enough to realize that everyone can make a mistake. They're they're constantly offering grace in all of their interactions. If you're thinking of others first, and you're more concerned with the glory of God than your own desires, then graciousness just comes natural. Right? If your focus is others before your own, and the glory of God before your own glory, then it's super easy just to offer grace when people need it. It's super easy to not be affected by every little circumstance in life. Paul writes about this to the Ephesians as well in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, walk like a Christian. Live your life as though you really, truly believe what this book says. In humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain unity. This means you don't always have to be right. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You don't always have to be right. This means you don't always have to have it your way. This means it's not always God's call on your life to set the record straight. Some people feel like that's their mission in life. I just got to set the record straight. I'm right, they're wrong. That's not, your, that's not God's call in your life. God's call in your life is to be gracious. It means you're humble enough to know that your way isn't the only way. You're gentle enough to manage conflict without hurting others. You're patient enough to endure other personalities. It means that unity is more important than your way when it comes to secondary issues. A few years ago, I got the privilege of working with a a friend of mine named Scott Odom. He was a youth pastor at the Beaumont campus at Calvary, and I worked at the Lumberton campus, so we worked really close together, especially planning things like camp and other events. And we are very polar opposites. Um, I tend to be detail-oriented, but this dude is like next-level crazy. Like every single thing is planned out to the... I mean, like just way further than I could ever possibly think of being. And uh, so he was really good at like administration, and I was better at like some of the creative things at camp and, 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 and that kind of thing. And so our forces combined, we worked really well together. And we saw God do some really amazing, cool things. But that only happened because both of us, I mean, we drove each other crazy all the time. We ended our first year at camp, and uh, we were in the parking lot, and I was like, all right, man, enjoyed it. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Uh, I was like, I know I probably drove you crazy this week. You drove me crazy this week. Uh, so we'll, we'll get a weekend away. And he was like, you absolutely drove me crazy this week. And so... We, we got a weekend apart, came back, and we were best friends again, ready to storm, uh, storm the world, right? And, uh, and, and that was only possible because both of us valued what God was doing through us together than our own personal desires. I wanted things to be different all the time. He wanted things to be different all the time. But we came together with a common goal of reaching teenagers for the glory of God 
and God moved through that. We were both humble enough to, to say, my way isn't the best way. Be joyful and let that joy lead you to graciousness. Be sweet and reasonable. People make mistakes. People have different ideas than you. Always be sweet and reasonable. Number four, have the right perspective. Look at the second part of verse five. He says, the Lord is near. You could easily pass up that little spot, right? You could easily just read past that and keep reading. That's an important part, though, because he's reminding the Philippians of something very important. He's reminding us of something very important. The Lord is near. That's our perspective. Right? He goes on, he says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Often what leads us to conflict is stress. Stress will rob your joy. It'll take your focus off the kingdom and down to the circumstances of life. I had a really stressful week this week. Just seemed like every little thing was piling on top of each other. It was a really frustrating week. Um, like I said, just lots and lots of things. And ultimately, that led to a conflict at home in my marriage. And, and, and that's what stress does, right? Stress builds up inside of you. It takes your focus off the thing, the bigger picture of what matters. It brings it down into your own little world and the circumstances. And then you're super irritable and every little thing sets you off. Paul says, don't worry about anything. How easy is that? Right? If you're a stressor, how easy does it to say, don't worry about anything? Instead, have the right perspective. What perspective? Again, the Lord is near. Sure, there's a lot of stuff to stress about, right? We all know that. There's a lot of stuff that you can stress about. Politics, economics. I know there's a plant strike going on, so if you're involved in that, I'm sure that's stressful. Relationships, kids. I mean, there's all kinds of things that will make you super stressed. Paul says, don't worry about any of that. Don't let any of that stuff rob your joy. Instead, keep your eyes focused on what matters. What matters? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And instead of stressing about all of the things, bring your requests to God. God loves you. And he desires that you bring your stuff to him because he is sufficient to meet your needs. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, verse 26. He says, look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Don't stress about the circumstances of life. Instead, bring them to God and trust that he will provide. And the reward of that faith is peace the peace that passes all of our understanding. What a trade. What a trade, right? You have all the stress in life. You have all the stuff that you worry about. And God says, hey, bring that stuff to me. Lay it before me, and I'm going to make a trade with you. I'm going to take all your junk, and I'm going to give you the peace that passes your own understanding, something that's so far more than you can even understand or grasp. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to trade you. What a trade. We're talking about peace that doesn't make sense. We're talking about sleeping on a boat while the storm rages around you, peace. We're talking about though he slay me, yet I will trust him kind of peace. 
This kind of peace guards our hearts and minds from joy-robbing stress. Stress makes a lot of us self-centered and angry, and that's a breeding ground for conflict. Paul says, don't get that way. Remember that the Lord is near. He is in control. He's got this. I know every single one of you probably has junk you're dealing with. We all do. It's just the nature of the beast, right? All of us have stuff that we're going to stress about. And it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy for circumstances to rob your attention. And Paul says, remember God is in control. The Lord is near. Don't let those circumstances rob your joy. Don't let stress breed conflict in your life. Instead, bring your stuff to God and exchange it for unbelievable peace. Number five, the last point. He says, dwell on the right stuff. Look at verse eight. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So in order to resolve conflict, we're choosing to be humble, not always assuming our way is the best way. We're choosing to provoke one another towards unity. We're going to be joyful and let that joy produce graciousness in us. We're trading our stress for unbelievable peace. And then finally, we're choosing to dwell on the right stuff. Dwelling on the wrong stuff is another thing that can rob your joy and lead us toward conflict with others. If you dwell on your sinful desires, your affections will be stirred for the things of this world and your focus turns inward and your joy will be stolen. So rather than dwelling on your simple desires, Paul says dwell on holiness. He says dwell on truth, honor, justice, purity, things that are lovely, commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy. In other words, dwell on the things of God and not on the things of this world. Look what Paul says. We should be dwelling our minds and our hearts on the things of God and not on the things of this world. We live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with messages, images, and worldviews that are incompatible with the gospel. We live in a culture that worships individualism and personal success and gratification. These things are incredibly alluring. Even for the believer whose eyes have been opened to the truth that they don't even bring fulfillment, right? We can know that the things of this world don't bring fulfillment. We know that because if you're a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit has revealed that truth to you. But even knowing that truth, the things of this world still wage war against our affections and draw us towards them, even when we know that they don't bring life. Even when our eyes have been opened to truth, even when we've experienced the goodness of God, We're still drawn to the things of this world. Listen, I deal with this, you deal with this. If if you're telling yourself something different, you're, you're a liar. Because the truth is, all of us struggle with this. Even as a preacher, people come up to me on Sundays and they're like, man, you did such a good job. And all of this thoughts of success start to well up inside of me. And I'm like, man, I really like that attention. And I have to wage war against that because it steers my affections for the things of this world. I have to be constantly reminding myself that those things don't bring life. That the approval of man doesn't bring life. 
So I have to live my life for the glory of God. I have to remove the things that rob my affections for God and focus and dwell on the things that stir my affections for God. If we're not careful, we'll start to dwell on these things and our affections will be misdirected from Jesus to the things of this world. This is a real danger because there's no joy in misplaced affections. Joy is only found in Christ. Joy is only found in Christ. It's not found in that new house, right? You go walk through the neighborhood and you're like, man, that neighborhood's house is better than my house. I want that, right? That starts to dwell up inside of us. We start to live our lives for things like success and approval and money and all these things. We live our life for these things and they don't bring joy because only Jesus can give you joy. And so if you live your life for the things of this world, you will find meaninglessness. But if you live your life for Christ, you'll find joy. Paul's telling us constantly reject the things that rob our affections for Christ and to consciously dwell on the things that stir our affections for Christ. We have the ability to choose what we think about. You have the ability to choose what you think about. This applies to every aspect of our lives. But given our cultural context, it's especially appropriate for evaluating our consumption of things like digital media. Right? Music you listen to, the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch, the books you read, the online videos you scroll through and spend hours a day flipping through. If you're not careful, you see images of the things of this world and they will redirect your affections from Christ to the things of this world. This doesn't mean that everything we consume has to be overtly Christian. That's legalism. But it does mean that it should draw our hearts closer to God and increase our desire to obey him. If the subject of our thoughts doesn't do these things, then it doesn't pass the Philippians 4.8 test. The things that you're consuming don't draw you towards God, but push you further away from God. You're not living this. And let's be honest, if we, took some, if we took this serious, it probably would radically change what we consume. We'd probably have to delete some apps on our phones. We'd probably have to pass on some movies and TV shows. We'd probably have to pass on some books that we read, not because movies are of the devil, Hear me this morning. I'm not trying to tell you some legalistic thing that you better only watch rated G movies so you're going to hell. That's not what I'm trying to tell you this morning. It's not because movies are of the devil, but because we're serious about guarding our hearts from the things of this world. Do you get how, how big of a deal this is? Do you get that there is a, an adversary that roars around like a lion seeking whom he, whom he may devour? There's an enemy out there, and if, you, if you're not constantly on guard, and you're missing out. You're going to get trapped. You're going to get allured by these things. It means that we're serious about protecting our hearts from the sin of idolatry. Satan wants nothing more than for you to redirect your affections to the things of this world, get focused on yourself, and start to worship yourself. That's what he wants for you. So he will do every tactic in his book to try to get you to fall for that. And tie that in with your own sinful heart and your own depravity, your own flesh. You have no chance unless you're serious about guarding against this. 
You have no chance unless you're spending time in the Word of God. If you're, you have no chance unless you're spending time on things that will stir your affections for God. If you just think that it's just going to happen, you've already lost the battle. Solomon, arguably the wisest man who's ever existed, wrote the book of Proverbs. Many people who are pagans still look to the book of Proverbs because there's a lot of good wisdom in there. He wrote about this in Proverbs 4, verse 23. He says, guard your heart above all else. So Solomon says, look, I'm going to write about money. I'm going to write about how to raise your kid. I'm going to write about how to abstain from temptation. I'm going to write about all these really important things in life. But above all else, above everything else that I write about, above all the other wisdom that I had to offer you, guard your heart. Why? Because it's the source of life. Because who you are as a person comes from your heart. Solomon knew how prone we are to wander. He knew how easy it is to misplace our affections on the things of this world. That's why he says, above everything else, guard your heart. Paul says if we're going to resolve conflict, we cannot be inwardly focused. So we must guard our hearts by dwelling on the right stuff. So Paul spends three chapters preparing the hearts of the Philippians to hear this truth. Why? Because conflict is that dangerous. And left unchecked, conflict brings immense instability within the body. So he says, don't be prideful. Your way isn't the only way. Agree in the Lord. On these secondary issues, obviously if it's doctrinal, we deal with that. But on these secondary issues, agree in the Lord. He says, partner in peace. Provoke each other to let go of the little stuff and live in unity. He says, live with joy and graciousness. Be sweet and reasonable. Don't be so irritable. He says, keep the right perspective. Don't let stress steal your joy and breed conflict. Trade stress for peace. He says, dwell in the right stuff. Guard your heart from the things that shift your heart's affections off of Jesus and on yourself. Conflict is unavoidable. We're doing, when we're doing life together, we're, we're going to have many opportunities for conflict. When you think about you and your spouse, when you start living together those first few years, it's a little bit rough sometimes, right? Because you're learning how to do life with someone. So there's a lot of, right, a lot of fireworks. And so you have to learn that your way isn't always the best way. You have to learn to compromise. So when we're doing life together, the same thing's going to happen. The question is, how are you going to handle it? How are you going to handle that conflict? Let's choose to handle it the right way because the mission is more important than our personal preferences. The thing that we've been called to do is to proclaim the goodness of God to the world around us. And that is more important than what you like or what you want. What we're accomplishing together through the power of the Spirit is eternally more important than having it your way. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? So the test here is are you easily irritated? 
Are you always in some kind of conflict? Is there, is there always something going on? Maybe it's because you're prideful. Maybe it's because you're not joyful or gracious. Maybe it's because you're letting stressed, stress shift your focus from the things of eternal value to the circumstances of life. Maybe it's because you're dwelling on the things of this world and it's shifted your heart's affections from Jesus to yourself. If you're a believer, and this is something that you struggle with, maybe it's time to acknowledge it and let the Spirit deal with it. I think some of this sometimes in our culture, in this Southeast Texas culture, sometimes gets masked in this idea that, man, I just am who I am. Right? And I just speak my mind, speak the way it is. There's nothing in the Bible that says that, that that's a, an admirable trait. Maybe in regards to doctrinal issues, but even then you shouldn't enjoy it. You deal with it because it needs to be dealt with, not because you like to be a jerk. So this is something you struggle with if conflict is something that you're always finding yourself in and you're always irritated and always angry then maybe it's time to deal with that maybe it's time to acknowledge that that that's who you are the good news is if that's who you are God offers grace he offers mercy and his spirit can change your heart can sanctify you from glory to glory. So if that's true about you this morning with every head bowed and eyes closed and you're willing to acknowledge that and you want to mourn that, you want to ask God to change your heart, then right where you're sitting, I would like to ask you to do something with every head bowed and eyes closed. I'd like to just ask you to slip your hand up where you're at so I can pray for you. You're willing to acknowledge, hey, I'm an irritable person. I'm constantly irritated. I'm constantly dealing with conflict. It's something I struggle with. I acknowledge it. I mourn it. I want God to change my heart. If that's you where you're at, just slip, slip your hand up. Hands all over the room. I'm going to pray for you. But what we're doing now, the band's going to sing. We're going to offer an opportunity for you to deal with it with God, for you to pray, for you ask, to ask God to change your heart. And you can do that where you're sitting. But you can also do that down here at these altars. We put these here to give you a place where you can come and have this moment just with you and God kneeling before him and asking him to change your heart. So as the band sings in a moment, if that's something you'd like to do, I would challenge you to do that. If, if you're not a come down front kind of person, that's cool. Right where you're at, ask God to change your heart. If you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Maybe joy is something that you've never even really experienced. You've been chasing the happiness, the temporary things that, that, that happiness can bring. So every time you're not happy, you do something to try to make yourself happy. You're not living for joy because you've never truly given yourself to Christ. You never surrendered your life to him. If that's you, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that. There's gonna be a couple of people that are gonna be standing down here in front when the band sings in a moment. We'd love for you to come down and grab them by the hand and have a conversation with them. And again, if you're not a come down front kind of person, I get that. There's a card in front of you. Fill it out, drop it in the box on your way out and we'll contact you this week. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to truly surrender your life to Jesus. Here in a moment, I'm gonna pray and as the band 
sings after that, this is a time for you to respond. However God leads you to respond in this moment, my prayer is that you'll do that, that you'll not have this posture of a hardened heart before him, but you allow God to change your heart in this moment. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. That even when we fail, even when we mess up, even when our, our hearts are rebellious towards you, God, you offer mercy, you offer grace, you offer love. And so God, I pray that in this moment, God, that, that your spirit is sanctifying our hearts. It's, as we've heard your word this morning, that, that you're using, your spirit's using this word to change our hearts and draw our affections for you this morning. I pray that you would do a work here in this place, here in this town. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.